Hey guys, it's uh, October the 9th, so that means a third of the month is already gone, and you have not nominated. <laughs> I mean, some of you haven't. So um, don't forget, all month long, you get a chance to nominate the men that you feel have the biblical qualifications for elder. If you're interested in reading that, um, try Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3. But um, here are the nomination forms if you need them. Um, I want to thank you for all of your kind comments about my pink shirt. Um, it is um, Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Uh, unfortunately, in a, in, a, in a horrible Freudian slip, um, I announced to one table that it was um, Breast Awareness Week uh, month. And uh, <laughs> so um, it was just a slip of the tongue. Um, <laughs> Breast Cancer Awareness Month, um, uh, and uh, I, I had such good intentions uh, in, in wearing my pink shirt tonight. Um, <clears throat> hey guys, uh, it's always fun to introduce you to, uh, the, to perhaps maybe things or names that maybe you, you, you don't know, but um, <clears throat> maybe you don't know the name John Owen. John Owen lived in the six, oh, late 1600s. He was considered... Um, the Puritan, the Puritan's theologian. Um, he was the theologian of the Puritans, and he's he's written um, a massive work, sixteen volumes, huge, seven hundred page volumes, um, in systematic theology. <laughs> so you can imagine um, the detail that you find in sixteen volumes. I've got all sixteen of them, but I, I, I introduce you to John Owen because I want to quote him. Um, he said something that I want to use as, as just kind of a, uh, a way to start tonight. Um, and he said, and, and I'm quoting John Owen, who said that the two most difficult things for a pastor to do are, now that caught my attention, the two most difficult things for a pastor to do are, number one, Get people to believe what God says about them in regard to their glorious salvation in Christ. <laughs> you, would, you would think people would be eager to, to understand and know that, um, but not so. In fact, guys, um, we, we have spent four weeks, maybe five, introducing this, this book study of uh, the book of Galatians. And all four of those, or five of those weeks, has been spent in trying to do that. Uh, we've talked about the, um, the righteousness of Christ imputed. We talked about active and passive obedience last week. That is, that not only does Jesus Christ die to pay for my sin, but he also lives to meet the demands that God has set for me. That is, um, those righteous standards uh, were not set aside. What they, they were met. And that righteousness, that, that righteousness is imputed to me. And it's hard to get God's people to, as Owen says, believe what God says about them in regard to their glorious salvation in Christ. We talked about the law. We talked about the role of the law and that the law in one sense has nothing to do with the Christian. It's been satisfied, and because it has, um, it is... in. Um, it is not defunct in the sense that it no longer uh, guides us in holy living. It does play that role. 
But in terms of a condemning force, the law is set aside because Christ has met that law. And we, we, we've spoken for four weeks trying to get this one thing over to you. And, and by the way, <clears throat> it's one of the themes of the book of Galatians, and we'll talk about it again and again and again. And, and let me say it again. One of the hardest things for the pastor to do, according to Owen, is get people to believe what God says about them in regard to their glorious salvation in Christ. That's a hard thing to do. It's a hard thing to convince people of the grandeur um, of a redemption and our participation in it. That's a hard thing. Here's the second thing that he says, that Owen says, is a hard thing um, for a pastor to do. Um, and <clears throat> this is not so pleasant. And this is not as pleasant as getting to do the other. But he says that the, the, the second thing that's hard for a pastor to do is get people to believe what God says about them in regard to their deep sinfulness in Adam. That's hard, too. It's hard to get people to believe the glories of the gospel. It's hard to get them to believe the great ravages of the fall. Um, and their, as he says it, deep sinfulness in Adam. <laughs> um, this, is a, this is a quote from Luther from the preface again. I think this is just about the last quote from the preface that we'll have for a while. Um, Luther says, Satan in paradise persuaded our first parents, Adam and Eve, that they might by their own wisdom and power become like God. Thereafter, everyone went his own way. Hoping without the aid of Christ and by his own works to redeem himself from evil and sins. <laughs> from the moment that Satan whispered that possibility into the ears of Adam and Eve, that is, um, you can be like God. Having been convinced of that, ever since then, he says, everyone else went his own way, hoping without the aid of Christ to save themselves. You know, guys, um, I tell, I've told this story uh, at least four times a year because I tell it every new member's class. I tell this story. But uh, the night that Susie and I first heard the gospel, which was in September of 1970, Jim Kennedy, the name that some of you know, Dr. D. James Kennedy, came into our apartment in uh, Lauder Hill, Florida, and um, um, you know, shared the gospel with us. So that's the first time that we had ever heard it. But when Jim Kennedy arrived in our home that night, I, I, I say this four times a year, I say, when Jim, when Jim Kennedy arrived in our home that night, I already had a Savior. <laughs> Me. Me, I was my own Savior. And to be told that... that that I was in competition with Jesus Christ to save, to be told that essentially I was guilty of idolatry. Because what I was worshiping was me. 
can I read you this that Luther says again? Everyone else after Adam has gone his own way, hoping without the aid of Christ. Who needs Christ when you got Jimmy on? <laughs> I mean, who needs him? Hoping without the aid of Christ, by his own works. I mean, I sing in the choir. You know, I give United Way. You know, I help little old ladies across the street. Ain't that enough? Hoping by his own works to redeem himself from evils and sins. I remember that night, Jim Kennedy quoted a verse out of Isaiah 53 that many of you know, and it goes like this. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. That's right. That's what, that's what Luther's saying. Now, <clears throat> what I've just described is a, is a damning idolatry, if maintained. That is, if I, if I hold on to that, well, who needs him when i got such wonderful merit to me? If you hold on to that, you will perish. But there's a Christian version of it. There's a Christian version of the same idolatry that I had when Jim Kennedy, Jim Kennedy came into my apartment. That night. There's a Christian version of that of idolatry. Um, when I was in um, <laughs> when I was in uh, Hungary this this in August, um, I, I was going to mention this verse and that I'm about to mention to you, and um, thinking that these. Poor, stupid Hungarians would never get it. Of course, they proved me wrong. Um, they're a whole lot smarter than, than at least I am. And, you know, they speak four languages, and I speak one. But anyway, I, I, I had a $20 bill in my part. I, I think I had a couple of $20 bills in my, in my pocket. And I, and I got this close to saying, if anybody in here can tell me the last verse in 1 John 5, I'll give you this $20. This guy raises his hand. Um, and he quoted the verse for me. Fortunately, I did not offer the $20. Um, and, and anyway, this, so I thought, well, anyway. But I might want to offer it to you. But I won't. <laughs> um, but I wonder if you could tell me the last verse of the book of First John. Here's the last verse. You know, John, the one that leaned on Jesus' breast, the lover of, you know, the, the one that's known as the apostle of love, you know. Here's what he says. In his last strokes of the pen, he says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Do you know that? The last thing he said, and by the way, I mean, I think you can figure it out pretty simply. Little children, that's addressed to whom? That's addressed to us-ands. That's, that's, that's addressed to us. Little children. And, and, and now let me, are you tracking with me, guys? John Owen says that one of the hardest things for the pastor to do is to get people to believe what God says about them in regard to the deep sinfulness in Adam. It's hard to get people to realize just how ravaged we are. And the thing that I think that is missing in our understanding of our own fallenness is this whole idea of our being guilty of idolatry.
Not the kind that damns you. It's just the Christian version of that that, um, that makes us try to, to establish our worth and our identity apart from Jesus Christ. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is what John was talking about when he said, keep yourselves from idols. Guys, all sin, all of our sin, is ultimately rooted in, um, in an effort to try to redeem ourselves, to try to make ourselves of value, to try to, make our, to, to, try to establish our identity, to try and, and, and try to create some kind of worth, a sense of our own worth. And so something then takes the place of Christ and becomes for us a pseudo-savior. Um, the ultimate driving force behind our sin is that something besides Jesus Christ is functioning as an alternative righteousness or our source of confidence or our source of worth or our source of identity. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is what you call an idol. Um, you know, guys, uh, let, me, let me go this far. Um, all fear, all envy, all insecurity, all anger... All depression. Anybody got any problems with any of that? Or am I the only pervert in the room? Um, um, all of those things, and I could list more. I just listed six here. Um, all of those things, when they arise, mean that something besides Jesus Christ has become way too important to me. Something other than Christ is way too important to me. And so it leads to my envy. It leads to my fear. It leads to my anger. It leads to my uh, insecurity. It leads to my depression. That something that has become too much, too, way too important to me That's the thing that becomes my means of worth. And that is what we call an idol. And the, 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 um, the, the, the baffling thing for us, I mean, the, the complex thing for us is that the things that we do that to are, are good things. We take good things and we make them ultimate things, and they become bad things. Um, something besides Jesus becomes my real hope. If I can just have a perfect family, then, <laughs> then, then I have value. 
If my kids will all grow up and call me blessed, then, then I will have a sense of my own worth. You know, I heard this on the radio. Uh, was it radio or television? I guess it was television. Um, it's some kind of advertisement for something. And um, the woman says, you know, oh, it's, it's some kind of insurance deal. You know that we all, <laughs> we all want our kids to have it better than we did. Do you? Then stop it. Because that becomes the source of all of your sense of drive and determination that I've got to have it such that my kids have it better than I did. You know, let me tell you, if nobody else in the room is guilty of that, may I stand alone in my guilt then. And it was a good thing. Family, kids, marriage, yeah, perfect family, yeah, you know. And, and you know, it's interesting. I, I don't know how many are here who are roughly my age, but I see a couple of couples that are roughly my age. Um, um, I can't be sure of this, but I would bet you. I'd bet you a steak dinner they'd say the same thing. We all thought that that was, and you know what it was? It was a good thing that became an ultimate thing, and it became a pseudo-savior. This is how I'm going to establish my own worth. And it drove all these sins like depression. Oh, my kid, look what they did. And, um, I had a mother say to me tonight, and I, and I quote her glowingly and sweetly because I just love what she said. She said, you know, my kids are getting to the age where I say to them, surely we raised you better than that. <laughs> And I said to her, it only gets worse from here. <clears throat> but ladies and gentlemen, when, those, when, that, when that or anything else, um, uh, beauty, um, career success, um, uh, fan, appro- fan approval, I mean, all of it. All of it becomes my source of identity and it becomes the thing... It becomes the thing I live for. And when it does, it becomes a substitute savior. And then it it just spins off all of these ugly things. You know, guys, that's why I think Luther said. And see, this is why this doesn't ring very true to us. You know, I've said this to you a dozen times. I'm sorry to repeat myself, but, you know, on October the 31st of 1519, Martin Luther, um, I think it's 1517, uh, walks to the church there in Wittenberg, Germany, and he takes this list of things and he nails it but with a hammer. You know, this is not a metaphor. He, he, he actually nailed this thing up on the church door, which was the place where announcements were made in the city. I mean, if you wanted to know the news, you came to the church door, and there, there was the news. Well, he nailed this thing on the, on the church door to Wittenberg, and it, it was called the 95 Theses. It was his effort to enter into a debate with the Roman Catholic Church over their error. And the first 
theses of all, the first thesis of the 95 theses, was that repentance was to be a way of life for us Christians. That doesn't, that doesn't reach, that doesn't sit well. And I think the reason that it doesn't ring so true to us is because we've never gotten, like Owen said, we've never gotten a sense of our real ravage, the ravages of the fall on us. We don't know that, you know, Calvin said that the heart is a veritable manufacturing plant of substitute deities. He used the word idols. But I like that substitute deities. That's what, that's what the heart spins out all the time. All the time. Um, so, because he knew something about that, he then says, okay, well, the first thing that I need to say to the Christian church is repentance needs to be a way of life for us. Repentance is a way of life for us, guys, because we're far more ravaged than we think we are, and that's hard to convince you of. Um, um, <laughs> I, think, I think Rick Donlin said this, but he said it, it came from Tim Keller. It did not. I think, it, I think it, the, 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 the source of it is Ed Clowney from Westminster Seminary. I think he's the one that said this uh, recently, but uh, that we're far more wicked than we ever dreamed but we're far more loved than we ever dared hope. You see, that's the very thing that Owen is saying. It's hard to convince people, number one, that you're far more loved than you ever dared hope. It's hard to convince you of that. But it's also hard to convince you that you're far more wicked than you ever thought. That's, that's what Owen was saying. That's, that's what that sentence says. It's, we're, we're far more wicked than we think, and we're far more loved than we thought. Um, and and the, the reason that I think it's hard to convince you that, that we're more wicked than we thought and that repentance should be a way of life is because um, we have not got grasped this thing about little children. Keep yourselves from idols. Whatever it is that I'm using to establish my worth, apart from Jesus Christ, has gotten way too important and thus has become, has taken on a role, it's taken on a role of Savior. The thing that's going to save me and make me a person of worth is blank. What's yours? Fill in the blank. Because there's hundreds of them. Hundreds. Um, and which brings me to um, my last point, and that is it has to do um, with the nature of good works. I'll tell you how this is related. I mean, I'll try to... Um, guys, <laughs> you know that I hate legalism. I, I, I mean, the, the one thing that I'm steadfastly opposed to besides... Never mind. Um, um, is legalism? You know, I, 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 I think we have a church that pretty much has gotten that message. I hope you have. 
But guys, um, in a lot of places, in a lot of communities, good works are done so that we can get leverage upon God so that he will do what we really want him to do. Okay, God. I'll teach that Sunday school class. I'll teach that Sunday school class, God, and, uh, and I'll tithe. I'll tithe. And um, I won't run around on my wife. But here's what I expect. I want that corner office. And um, if I do those things, here's the bargain. I'm going to do those things, but this is, what I, this is what I expect in return. And so, guys, all those things that you're doing, like teaching the school class and tithing, you know what those are? Those are wicked. You see, not only do we have to repent of our sin, we've got to repent of our good works. You know, it's like the elder brother in the, in the parable of the prodigal son. Hey, father, I've been living here while your other son was over there in a wine woman and song. I've been here. I've been faithfully serving you. And I've been working out in those fields, and now it's pay-up time, father. Um, hey, father, you owe me. And so we memorize verses, we study our Bibles, we, take, we go to Sunday night church, which we don't have. Um, we, do, we don't smoke or chew, and you know, we gave up dancing, and you know, we do all those things because we're living the clean life because now, God, you owe me. So whatever that thing is that you're expecting God to give you in that bargain, that's who your God is. Whatever it was. Was it the perfect family? Was it the uh, perfect kids? You know, the successful career? You know, uh, cancer-free living? Uh, uh, loss of 30 pounds? Uh, you know, um, athletic ability? Whatever it is, you know. College scholarship? What, you name it. That's what your God is. And so these things that we call our good works are not good at all. Our good works need to be repented of. Just like our, the ones that we felt were our bad ones. Um, guys, there are two things that make a work good. No, there are two things that make a good work good. Two things. Number one, it's got to be it's got to be uh, um, commanded or demanded, however you'd like to say it, by Scripture. You know, there's a story in the book of Judges where Jephthah, Jephthah says to God, you know, if you'll help me defeat those Gideonites, Midianites, they're all a bunch of ites, but uh, if you'll help me f- defeat them, you know, I'll sacrifice the first thing that comes out the door when I get back. And you remember the story. They defeat the Midianites, and the first thing that comes out the door is his daughter. And um, some would suggest that he went out and sacrificed his daughter. I'm not sure I agree with the exegesis. But the point is, if he did, that wasn't a good work. Because God never asked you to do that. 
In fact, he's denounced child sacrifice. So the first thing that has to that would make a good work a good work is that it's got to be demanded or uh, commanded, however you want to say it, in the scripture. You know. Um, the second thing that makes a good work a good work is that it springs from a heart of faith. If it springs from anything else, you need to repent of it. No matter how good your Sunday school class thought it was. If it was, if it was in some way done to gain leverage on God so that he would give me what I really wanted, approval from my friends, whatever. Um, And by the way, ladies and gentlemen, in my mind, that's the heart and the soul of the legalist. The heart and soul of legalism is, I want something from you, and so I'm going to perform in such a way that you will give it to me. Whatever that is. And um, so I do my good works so that I can be seen by you so that you will say, whoa, he's a a spiritual giant. So, guys, good works for us are supposed to be things that are done in response to the beauty of the gospel. Period. Not because of how they might profit us, but because in response to what I see in this, the grandeur of the gospel that I also find hard to get you to believe. (laughs) No, no, I shouldn't say it like that. I also find hard for us to believe. We fall short of understanding the grandeur of the gospel. And we shall fall short of of understanding the ravages of the fall. And that explains a lot about um, um, our our spiritual condition, I think. So, uh, the only thing that makes a good work good is that if and when it is done in response to the beauty that I see in Christ and his finished work, then it's good. Um... Anything else is something that needs to be repented of. Because, guys, um, there is a sense in which the elder brother is a whole lot further from the father than is the prodigal son. And the elder brother lives in his house. He lives in the house of the father. But he's a whole lot further from him than is the prodigal. So, um, guys, one of the things that um, uh, I'm hoping will be the outcome of our study of the book of Galatians is that the gospel will be so compelling in all of its beauty. Not... Not the dictates of the church or the, you know, but the, the gospel will be so compelling that all these things that trouble us, envy, 
insecurity, anger, depression, all of those things. We'll find a, a better cure, fear. We'll find a better remedy in the finished work of Jesus Christ for those things. All those other remedies, they're temporary and they don't work. They might work temporarily. They just don't deliver me from those things that have a clutch on my heart. The thing that sets you free is Christ. And any time I find my hope of being set free by anything else, first of all, I'm going to be very disappointed. And second of all, it will mean that maybe I'll understand more of what it means by repentance is to be a way of life for me. Heavenly Father, I pray that you will use the the sixth chapter letter of the book of Galatians to remind us of just how great this thing is that we call salvation in Christ. Lord, you're going to have to enlarge our hearts so that we can take it in because our hearts are puny. They've been strangled. They've been strangled by things that are substitute deities. And they, um, they have disappointed us. And we have discovered how empty they are again and again. And yet we keep going back to them. Would you deliver us from them? And it seems to me, O oh God, that the only way that deliverance will occur is when the gospel crowds into our heart, crowding out all things false. Would you, um, would you perform that among us and all of us by the power of the Holy Spirit? And we ask it, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you and good night. <laughs>